Good morning, all. Great to see you. Welcome. Is it still raining out there? Yeah, well, it's a good spring day. Good spring day. Welcome. Hey, I just want to reiterate what Pat, Pastor Chris was mentioning about Easter Sunday in two weeks. Grab those invitation cards you have in your bulletin. Hand them to folks you know. If, uh, if you need more, grab some. There's a stack of them on the information table as you leave today. Uh, we are very excited about Easter this year. You know, you, you realize that this is why we've reconfigured our worship schedule on the weekend. We've added a service. Anytime you add a service, you double the space of the room. And so you can see today, of course, we've got spring break and, and people are still sleeping, things like that. But, <laughs> but, um, but there's room. We've made room for more people. So we have room for you and we have room for people that you know and love. And as Chris was saying, eight out of 10 people will respond positively to an invitation to come to church. And this is especially true if people know you and trust you as you give them the invitation. So I encourage you to uh, participate in that. We're continuing this morning on this series we've been on with marriage and family. Today I want to talk about how to survive the storms of life, how to fortify your family for the long haul. And I think it'll be meaningful to you. If you have your Bibles, we're going to look at Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7. Uh, while you're turning there, I found this list of uh, wise sayings from children who oftentimes have insights that are meaningful to us. For example, Alan, age 10, was asked, how do you decide who to marry? And he said, you got to find somebody who likes the same stuff. Like, if you like sports, she should like it that you like sports, and she should keep the chips and dip coming. <laughs> Kirsten, age 10, says, no person really decides before they grow up who they're going to marry. God decides it all way before, and you get to find out later who you're stuck with. <laughs> Camille, age 10, was asked, what is the right age to get married? 23 is the best age because you know the person forever by then. <laughs> yeah. Derek, age 8, was asked, how can a stranger tell if two people are married? He said, you might have to guess based on whether they seem to be yelling at the same kids. Lori, age eight, what do you think your mom and dad have in common? She said, both don't want to have any more kids. <laughs> Lynette, age eight, was asked, what do most people do on a date? Dates are for having fun, and people should use them to get to know each other. Even boys have something to say if you listen long enough. <laughs> Martin, age 10, he's wise. He said, on the first date, they just tell each other lies, and that usually gets them interested enough to go on a second date. <laughs> That's actually true. Craig, age nine, what would you do on a first date that was turning sour? He said, I'd run home and play dead. The next day, I would call all the newspapers and make sure they wrote about me in all the dead columns. The man's checking out. He's <laughs> not going to do that again. Pam, age seven, says, when is it okay to kiss someone? She said, when they're rich. <laughs> She's on her way. She's on her way. Kurt, age seven, said, uh, the law says you have to be 18, so I wouldn't want to mess with that. Yeah. Harold, age eight, and this, this little boy has good morals, apparently. He said, the rule goes like this. If you kiss someone, then you should marry them and have kids with them. It's the right thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> Theodore, age eight, was asked, is it better to be single or married? He said, I don't know which is better, but I'll tell you one thing. I'm never going to have sex with my wife. I don't want to be all grossed out. 
Anita, age nine, said it's better for girls to be single, but not for boys. Boys need someone to clean up after them. <laughs> Kelvin, age eight, was asked how would the world be different if people didn't get married? He said, well, there sure would be a lot of kids to explain, wouldn't there? <laughs> yeah. Here's the last one. Ricky, age 10, was asked, how would you make a marriage work? He said, tell your wife that she looks pretty, even if she looks like a truck. <laughs> hey, it's good advice. I mean, it's, it's, it's helpful. All right, Matthew chapter 7. I'm going to read verses 24 to 29. This is a parable of Jesus, so you may see red letters in your Bible. Our custom is to stand as you're able to hear God's word. Thank you for doing so. Jesus said, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. May God inspire us today through this powerful word. You may be seated. Thanks so much. In our passage today, there are two homes depicted. One is built on the rock. The other is built on the sand. There are two builders. One is wise. The other is foolish. There are two results. The house built on the sand was lost. The house built on the rock survived. Friends, here's what this uh, simple yet profound teaching is all about. When the storms of life come against us, we will either stand against them or we will fall. The question isn't whether or not the storms will come. They will. The question is how will we respond to them? And depending on the foundations that we establish in our relationships and in our families, we'll determine whether or not our lives will be able to stand under the pressure of the inevitable storm. Sixth grade teacher in California, this was an upper middle class neighborhood. She asked her class to complete the sentence, I wish. She figured these 12-year-olds would wish for what most 12-year-olds want, a new bike or a new iPad, or smartphone, something like that. She was surprised that 20 out of the 30 of her students talked about their family. Some of them went like this, I wish my parents wouldn't fight and I wish my father would come back home. I wish my mother didn't have a boyfriend. I wish I could get straight A's so my father would love me. I wish I had one dad and one mom so the kids wouldn't make fun of me. I have three moms and three dads and they botch up my life. Those of us old enough to have the privilege of being alive in the, in the era of Mother Teresa when she was on the earth and influencing the world, on the occasion when Mother Teresa was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, she was asked the question, what can we do to promote world peace? And this is what she said, and I quote, go home and love your family. That's strong, isn't it? Strong. Jesus is teaching us that the difference between the homes that stand and the ones that don't when confronted by the storms of life is commitment. 
A commitment to Jesus Christ, commitment to our faith, and a commitment to our family. It's that commitment that lays the foundation necessary to survive the storms that inevitably come. We've learned in this series over the last few weeks that marriage is a God idea. It's a God-wrought, God-thought, God-designed institution. It is a covenant. It's not a contract. It's not the merger of two corporations. It's not an experiment that we hope turns out okay in the end. It is a covenant which implies absolute commitment one to the other. The only analogy that Jesus makes to the marriage is his own relationship with you and me, the church. Jesus is the bridegroom. We are his bride. And this analogy, this example, this model is how he defines marriage. The same love and commitment and devotion that Jesus has to us is the same we should have for one another in our covenant relationships. Jesus reminds us, though, in Matthew 7 that the rains will come. And in the Greek language here, the original word for rain is broke. It means a sudden and violent rain or thunderstorm. It's powerful. It comes quickly. It passes quickly. Then he mentions the floods. And this implies an overwhelming or devastating experience. And we all can identify with that. And then he said the wind will blow. And it implies a strong gale, a fierce and powerful, forceful wind. And so we know that this kind of powerful, eroding forces can come against our marriages and families in our culture. And I want to talk about a few things today that we should be aware of. On your outline, you'll find the first point is the culture we live in. You need the word culture. Rain soaks us just as culture immerses us in its influences. Jesus said that we're in the world, but we shouldn't be of the world. That if we're not intentional about resisting some aspects of our culture, that we will be influenced by it. And if if it's left unchecked, that it could have an eroding effect on our lives and our families. And so he mentions culture. We know that in our culture today, there are many issues that are eroding the family. And it'd be easy to target some of those obvious things like the acceptance of alternative lifestyles or the pervasiveness of sexual immorality or materialism or the radicalized gender roles that have been shifted so dramatically in the last 40 or 50 years in our culture. Last fall, I had this opportunity to sit and listen to a a really smart guy. His name is Andy Crouch. He's the executive editor of Christianity Today magazine. He's He's a scholar and a theologian and author And he unpacked, for those of us in attendance, some interesting insights with regard to our culture. I want to share a couple of those with you today. The first is what he described as the new Gnosticism. Now, that's a kind of a fancy word, but but it's really simple to understand. Gnosticism emerged as a worldview, a philosophy, a religion, if you will, in the first century. Uh, It came from a different number of different streams of thought and basically uh, at some point began to intermingle with the Christian faith, the first century church, the Apostle Paul actually addresses it in the book of Colossians. And you can see him referring to this special knowledge and that sort of thing. Gnosticism is from the root Gnostic and, and, or Gnosis, and that's translated into English, knowledge. And so Gnosticism, this myth, this heresy, for all of these centuries, there's nothing new under the sun, it's about having special knowledge 
which gives you special spiritual power. So if you understand the special sauce and you understand the special formula and you know things that other people don't know, that gives you special insight and special power at a spiritual level. So if you, if you got the special knowledge, then you can have special power. Now, the way that this uh, manifests itself uh, in culture and the, the, the philosophical roots of it the, at the core of Gnosticism is the denigration of the physical world and the human body. And not only the, the denigration of the human body, but also as that contrast with the purity of the spirit. So you have the human body that's de denigrated and reduced and, and devalued and the natural world around it, the physical world around it. And in some Gnostic teaching, the physical world doesn't even exist. It's unreal relative versus the spiritual world, which is ultimately real. And that's where real morality is experienced. And so one of the questions that's asked in this worldview is, what if you could transcend the physical limitations with some special knowledge. And actually, science and technology have allowed us to do this in the last 150 years. For example, air conditioning is an example of this, where, where the, in, the entire North American demographic shift has occurred to the southern states, more people living in the south now, because of the advent of air conditioning. 150 years ago, no one was thinking about moving to Florida because it was just too, too hot to live there year-round. And so air conditioning changed all of that. The telephone is another example uh, where you can be in one place and actually transcend where your physical body is by talking to someone in a completely different place. And you go, well, what? that's not a big deal, but it's a big deal <laughs> when you think about being beyond your body, where your body is, is no longer relevant, so that you can actually impress or influence or communicate somewhere else. Uh, contraception is another example of this. If you had said to people 150 years ago, you can take this pill, it will keep you from being pregnant, <laughs> it would have been magic to people, just magical to people. And now we have virtual reality technology where folks are actually creating uh, programs where you can take yourself out of your body and place yourself in a virtual world into another place, another time, another experience, another relationships. Some people saying that in a short period of time, virtual reality would actually be more exciting than real reality. And so we have, we have these kinds of symptoms that are identified this way where the natural physical world is no longer important and the spiritual world, that's where true meaning and morality and significance can be found. Now, with that underlaying, what, what are some of the symptoms of this idea, if indeed culture is embracing a new Gnosticism? By the way, the, the latest version of Gnosticism in our religious world in America is Christian science. You have lots of Hollywood personalities who embrace the philosophy of Christian science. It's just another version of Gnosticism that denigrates the body, refutes the natural world for the spiritual. Here's an example. A few months ago, I was watching TV, a news program, a documentary, and it depicted a handful of women in New York City in Times Square walking on the street, and they, all they were wearing was body paint. So these women are essentially nude. They have body paint on, and they're walking around. And someone with a camera and a microphone walked up to one of these women and asked her this question, do you think what you're doing is wrong? 
And this is what she said. She had some incredulity in her voice, like, how dare you ask me if what I'm doing is wrong? And she said, no, I am a very spiritual person. And then she said, and I quote, I don't believe God judges people for doing what makes them happy. Now, what's going on there? Well, one way to explain it is a shift in worldview, a shift in our culture toward Gnosticism, to this notion that what I do with my body, what I do in my body, through my body, is irrelevant. But what I do from a spiritual perspective, that's what's valuable. So I can behave in any kind of way I want, so long as my spiritual life is healthy and well. Now, what does this mean to the church? Well, listen, for those of us who actually believe the Bible true, and I do, I believe the Bible is true. I think it's ultimate reality. I believe God has revealed himself through his son, Jesus Christ, and his word now becomes his will and way for us, and we can find our way in life, and we can understand reality through it. I believe that. And so here's a consequence. There's a massive threat then to different concepts that we have as Christian people with a Christian worldview. One concept, for example, is the concept of creation. The Bible says that God, in the beginning, created the heavens and the earth. That Almighty God actually designed and created the world in which we live, the physical world. So you got people saying the physical world and our physical bodies are no longer relevant. We can do anything we want. There is no, there is no morality uh, in, our, in our bodies. We can do anything, anytime, with anyone, in any way. And it's perfectly fine as long as we maintain our spiritual connection because that's where the ultimate reality is. God, on the other hand, says, no, wait a minute, I created the world. And the Bible also says that you and I, as physical human beings, are, are fearfully and wonderfully made. And we actually understand some design and intent with regard to the way we relate to one another. And even in a sexual way, it's for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so there is all kinds of implication. Because God has designed for our physical body and our physical world. What about the incarnation of Jesus Christ? This is what, this is what we celebrate you know, every December. This is like a big deal. We call it Christmas. And the whole world pauses to contemplate the notion that God saw our need as human beings and lowered himself. He condescended through the ranks of glory and angels all the way to the earth. And God himself put on an earth suit and walked around on the ground. And showed us the way to God and ultimately gave his life as a sacrifice for our sin and our need. The incarnation of Jesus Christ comes into question now. If, if our human bodies are unreality and the physical world doesn't even exist, it doesn't even matter, then what happens to the incarnation? Indeed, the Holy Spirit becomes blasphemed in a culture that now thinks that the physical world and the, and the natural body is of no consequence. Because the Bible teaches us that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That the Spirit of God, of Almighty God, actually indwells us. So we're walking around in these earth suits taking God with us everywhere we go. Because God is in us, the Holy Spirit. And I actually believe that's true. If you know Jesus today, the Holy Spirit lives in you. He lives in me. And so we, are, we, we live in our mortal bodies in an honorable way. And in a God-centric way. Now, what's the, what's the solution to this if it's true? And I think it probably is true that this a new Gnosticism is occurring in our culture. 
what, what do we need? What's the solution? And the solution is that we need a theology of the body. We need a theology that reminds us of who we are, how God has made us, and God's original intent, original design for our lives. And that is so important to us. By the way, Pope John Paul II, just two popes ago, wrote a, a series of papers on the theology of the human body, and they are excellent. And if you want to study more about this, maybe this is interesting to you, just go online and ask for Pope John Paul II and Theology of the Human Body, and you'll see his papers, and you can read them, and it will help inform you of the divine design that God has given us in our human bodies. He made them male, and he made them female, and we are to live our lives in our bodies in an honorable way. Now, here's the second thing. It's, it's what Andy Crouch calls the rise of shame. Now, let me explain. There are basically two separate worldviews that exist in our world, depending on what culture you live in. In the Western cultures, the United States, Europe, for centuries and centuries, in the United States forever, since our inception, we have had what is described as a guilt-based worldview. And a guilt-based worldview basically says that, there is, that we have an internal sense of being out of alignment with God's best design, that we fall short somehow of God's best design, and our innocence has been lost. We see the world, and virtually everyone in America right now who are 45 years old and older, we see the world through the lens of right. There are some things that are right and some things that are wrong. There's right and wrong. There are some things that are right, and you can't make them wrong. And there are some things that are wrong, and no matter what you do, what you say, you can't make them right. And that's the world in which we live, and it's a guilt-based world view. And, and as, a result, as a result of that, uh, we go through the world and we make decisions and choices. And the worst thing that can happen to those of us who have a guilt-based worldview is that we can do something wrong that we know to be wrong and that we might be judged for it and held accountable for it. And so we have a sense of our need for forgiveness and our sense of our need for, for help, intervention. Now, on the other side... There is, there is what is described as a shame-based worldview. Most of, most of the Middle Eastern cultures, uh, the Asian cultures are all shame-based cultures. And by shame-based, that is defined by how do I fit into a community without shame, with honor and without shame. And in a shame-based culture then, we, we, we view the world differently. So it's not about whether I do what's right or what I, whether I do what's wrong, according to some standard of rules. But it's based whether, on whether or not I am accepted into the community or excluded dishonorably from the community. The worst thing that can happen to a person who has a guilt-based worldview is that I can commit sin, do something wrong, I know to be wrong, and be judged for it. The worst thing that can happen for a person who has a shame-based worldview is that I can do something dishonorable and shameful and I can be excluded from the community because of it. Now, the way this plays out, and according to Andy Crouch, and I think he's onto something here, he suggests that the younger generation in America, the emergent generation, the emergent culture, is more and more seeing themselves from an honor and shame-based perspective, not a guilt-based perspective. So, so, so more and more young people in our culture now 
base their worldview on how others accept them or think of them, think of me. And he thinks that it's driven by social media, by the likes and favorites, that you can measure your honor or your shame digitally and almost immediately. So, do you, so you say something or you express an opinion through social media and you find out, oh, I got 10 likes from that statement, uh, so I'm included. Or I'm on someone's favorites list, so, so I'm accepted. And remember, the worst thing that can happen to a person with a shame-based worldview is that they would be excluded from the community. Now, let me give you an example. For example, emergence, more and more young people in our culture today do not feel guilt about hooking up, about having casual sex. For people, listen, young people, hear this if you can. People 45 years old and older in our culture, to have casual sex goes completely against our sense of right and wrong. But emergence more and more now don't feel guilty about that at all. They don't feel guilty about looking at porn. But they do feel shame. Remember, the worst thing that can happen isn't that you do something wrong and you, and you get judged for it. The worst thing that can happen is that I can do something dishonorable or shameful and I can be excluded from the community. And so it's, it's, it's an interesting way to look at the world. Now, what's the solution for a shame-based culture? I mean, how do you communicate the gospel? The good news, the gospel is available. The gospel is good news because the gospel actually includes people who have a guilt-based perspective or a shame-based perspective because the gospel says to you, look, if you've done what's wrong, if you have sinned, good news, there is forgiveness available for you. You have been redeemed by Jesus Christ. And if you're from a shame-based perspective and you feel shamed and, and your sin has actually caused you to feel, feel shamed and dishonored and excluded from the community, the good news is that God has made a way for you and offered you forgiveness and He wants to include you. Whosoever will may come. God wants you to be part of the family. He died for you and so He has forgiven you. You don't have to live in shame. You can be included. And so it's, it's a very helpful, for, at least for me, a helpful way to see some of the cultural changes and shifts and the pressure that culture is applying to our families and to our own spiritual lives. So the culture we live in, we have to be alerted to. Now, let's move a little more quickly. The second thing on your outline is this, the crisis we live through. The crisis we live through. Here's what happens. Jesus said there's going to be a flood from time to time. Floods do happen, and floods are devastating. They, they really are. And floods happen in families, don't they? Floods happen in families. And so the question is, are you going to give up? Are you going to walk away? Or are you going to stick together? I mean, what happens when, when you lose your job? Or when your house burns to the ground? Or you get a devastating diagnosis from the doctor? Or, or you lose one of your children? How do you respond to that? What do you do? Here's what Jesus said. He said, your foundation, your foundation will determine whether you'll survive the flood. That's how, that's how it works. Remember your wedding vows. For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. It means I am committing myself to you in such a way and resting my faith and hope in Jesus Christ so as to give us a firm foundation that will hold no matter what. 
I saw an article in Psychological, Psychology Today, and it featured the question of what keeps a marriage together, and it was mentioned there that commitment is the most important thing to keep a marriage going long-term. There was a guy there who was quoted. I want to quote him for you today. He's been married 30 years with many trials, but this is what he said. Commitment means a willingness to be unhappy for a while. Commitment means a willingness to be unhappy for a while. It's one of the most lucid statements I've heard for a long time. There it is. So families that survive, families that make it over the long haul, they develop skills that help them cope when the wind and the rain and the flood comes, because it comes. And so they, they figure out how to be positive. They figure out how to be hopeful. They, they figure out how to take what's bad and see, see the opportunity in it. And they, they make their way. They, they, go, they go through it. And I want to dispel an, a myth today. The myth is that families that don't have any problems make it. And families that have problems don't. And I want to dispel the myth. That is, that is a big pile of baloney. No, that's just a big pile. Everybody has problems. Every family has wind and rain and flood. Everyone does. Uh, in fact, there are people in this room today who have stayed in their marriage with greater problems than those that broke up. And that's a fact. So here's some statements about problems in families. Everybody has problems. All God's children has problems. Second, not all families respond the same way to problems. It's an interesting little anecdote from the Chinese language. The symbol for crisis in the Chinese language is the identical symbol, symbol that can be also interpreted opportunity. How cool is that? I mean, built right into the culture, built right into the language. Crisis and opportunity are the same thing. That's really good. Another thing about problems in families, a family's response will either make it or break it. Not if the problems occur, but how you respond when they do. Remember Dennis the Menace? <laughs> he's standing in the corner and he screams at the top of his lungs, which he's given to do. He screams at the top of his lungs, if you're raising me right, how come I keep getting into so much trouble? Yeah. Yeah. Some kids wanted to give their father a book on the family tree, you know, the family genealogy, but they found a problem because their uncle George, they discovered, had committed murder and was executed in the electric chair. But the biographer said, no problem, I can clean that up. And so this is what he wrote in the, in the, in the genealogy report. He said, quote, Uncle George occupied a chair of applied electronics at an important government institution. He was, he was so attached to his position by the strongest of ties that his death came as a real shock. <laughs> That's cleaning it up pretty good. Let me give you a quote from one of my favorites. His name is Fred Smith. And look what he did. I'll put this on the screen for you. He said, a problem is something I can do something about. You may not remember anything I say today, but I hope you'll remember this quote because some of you are right now, you're in a flood, you're in a wind, you're in a storm, waters are rising, you're not sure what to do, you have a problem. But listen to me, it's how you respond to the problem that will determine what happens to you. You have to make sure your foundation's in place, you have a commitment to Jesus Christ, and you have a commitment, an unshaking, unswerving, unwavering commitment to your family, and, you, and you, that's where you stand. And then if you have a problem, a problem is something you can do something about. And so you're not just going to let the wind blow you away, the water sweep you away. You're not going to let that happen. You're going to deal with it. God's going to help you. Listen to Isaiah chapter 43. 
This is the great prophet. He said, but now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Isn't that good? Isn't that encouraging? Isn't that hopeful? Now, on your outline, you can see the interpretation of this passage. One, you can relax in God's plan. You don't have to fear. You can trust in God, His plan and His power to direct your destiny. He is in control. Two, you can recognize God's presence. He's called you by name. He knows your name. He knows your need. He is present with you. He has not abandoned you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He's with you. And three, you can rely on God's protection. The flood, it will not overcome you. Deep water, it will not overflow you. Fire, you will not be burned. You notice the phrase, when you walk through the fire, notice the phrase, through the fire. Now, listen, let me just say this out loud. I don't like through the fire. I'd rather around the fire, under the fire, over the fire, but not through the fire. But the promise is if you walk through the fire, you'll not be burned. And what's the pace? Pace is walk through the fire. I don't like walk. I'd rather run. I'd rather race. I'd rather blast through the fire. But the phrase is, when you walk through the fire, you'll not be burned. It's encouraging, isn't it? Now, can I get a witness today? How many of you walked through the fire and God saw you through? Amen. Yes. Last thought. We have the culture we live in and the crisis we experience. Now we have the changes we live with. The changes we live with. I don't know if you've realized this or not, but there's one consistent thing in your life, and that's change. In families, in relationships, in your own life, change is the one constant. Things are constantly changing. This is especially true when you're raising small children. I mean, isn't it true as parents? I mean, you wake up one morning, you go, hey, look at that guy. He's walk- that kid's walking. You-, you go to sleep, you wake up the next-, the next day, and the kid's going, hey, look, he's going to school. You go to sleep, you wake up the next day, he's asking for the car keys. You sleep two more nights, you wake up, and she's gone. She's left the house. And you think, what happened? Constant changes, constant, constant alterations required, accommodation required to keep up with these changes. In a marriage relationship, these kinds of things happen. And if you don't intentionally stay close to one another, you can grow apart. It's fascinating to watch people who've been married 25, 30, 35 years, and then they get a divorce. And you go, come on, you went 30 years, why not finish it? But people do. They, they, they lose footing on their foundation. They, they stop growing as they change in their own lives. Sometimes the children are the focus of their lives. When the children are gone, it's just the two of them left. They don't know each other anymore. They've grown apart. Things like this happen. So we need, we need to continue to adjust and adopt to the change. We're changing physically, we're changing emotionally, we're changing mentally, we're changing spiritually all the time. And we, we need to adapt. Zig Ziglar is one of my favorite uh, communicators. He teaches communication. He uh, reported this story where a woman went to her pastor for marriage counseling 
And the pastor asked her, do you have any grounds? And she said, yes, yes, we have about nine acres. And the pastor said, no, no, I mean, do you have a, have a garage? And she said, no, we have a carport. The pastor said, no, no, ma'am, uh, 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 does your husband beat you up? She said, no, I'm always the first one up. I'm kind of a morning person. <laughs> she said, well, why are you having trouble with your husband? She said, I don't know. The man just doesn't know how to communicate. <laughs> On an anniversary card, a woman is depicted in an old house coat with curlers and her hair all wiry. The husband walks in with their wedding picture and asks, who are you and what have you done with the woman in this picture? <laughs> change happens. Change is inevitable. Change, change is something that has to be dealt with. Listen, you can re reject it. You can live in denial of it. I know it's, she's not good. He's not. There's, a, there's no change. But change is happening. You can deny it if you want. You can resist it. But if you resist it, listen, it will wear you down. It will break you because it will, it will bend you because it's inevitable. Change is happening. You can resent it, but that just makes you bitter, and nobody wants to be that. Or you can relish it. Think about it. You can embrace it. You can learn from it. You can value it. You can allow change to enrich your life. You know, it'll keep you from stagnating. Beth and I have this phrase that we use with each other all the time and have for years when things are getting crazy, and things are often just crazy in our lives. And one of us will look at the other and say, well, listen, we're not bored. At least we're not bored. And that's right, because we're moving and changing and shifting in order to accommodate the changes that are happening. Nobody wants to be bored. Some couples, some couples who, who live together for a long, long time, they begin to act alike and think alike and even look alike over time. You can actually go online and see pictures of the before when they, people get married. They look very different. And then 50 years later, their picture, they look, they look like they're the same person. It's hilarious. I don't know if you've ever seen that or not. It's just great where people have actually morphed into each other's image. Beth is fighting it. She is fighting it <laughs> with everything she has. Pray for her. Listen, we got to be prepared for the rains in our culture, the floods of crisis, the winds of change. They happen. When these things come, and they will, you must have a foundation, a foundation on the rock. That's a commitment to Jesus Christ and a commitment to each other. That's how you last. Did you know that 72% of all children in our culture, when they are brought to church by their parents, both of their parents, when they are brought to church, when they are young, that when they grow up, they'll serve God and be meaningful members of the church? 72%. Did you know that if only the father brings the children to church, that the number drops to 55%? Did you know that if only the mother brings the children to church, that number drops to 15%? Did you know that if neither parent bring their children to church, and expose them to a meaningful relationship with Jesus that only 6% of these kids will ever live for God. It's pretty sobering, isn't it? I love the, the account in Joshua chapter 24 where Joshua has now taken over the leadership of the nation. He has succeeded Moses. He has everyone assembled at a place called Shechem. This was, this was an historic moment. And he stood with his family behind him in front of the nation. Some people 
imagine about 2 million people there. And this is what he said. It's found in Joshua 24, 14, and 15. He said, Now fear the Lord and serve Him with all faithfulness. He said, Choose then for yourselves this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my household, my family, we are going to serve the Lord. Isn't that good? Isn't that strong? That's how you lay a foundation. That's how you survive the storm. Last little thought, a group of women were gathered and they were talking about how to influence their children for Jesus. And the oldest member of the, of the group, an older grandma, she said, I began influencing my children about 20 years before they were born. And I did it by giving my life to Jesus Christ. And friends, that's how you lay the foundation. Live for God and live for one another. A committed bond so when the storms of life come, your house will stand. He who has an ear, let him hear what God is saying. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you today for this powerful word. It's so simple and yet so profound. So simple. You build your house on a rock, it'll stand. You build your house on sand, and it will fall. Lord, give us wisdom. Help us to be wise. The wise man, the wise woman hears what you say and then practices what you say, thus building their house on a rock. So make us men and women of wisdom. Give us the grace we need and the power we need. And remind us, oh God, that you're with us. You'll never leave us. And you will sustain us as we place our trust in you. Bless every marriage here, I pray. Encourage every family within the sound of my voice. Help us to live in such a way that honors and pleases you. In Jesus' name I pray. And everyone said, amen. Would you stand with us now as we sing?